Hello. Hello. Hola. Hola. Bonjour. Здравствуйте. Bienvenidos and welcome to Radio Natura. Radio Natura. To Radio Natura. Voices from around the world, bringing you all things related to nature and sustainability. Rethinking what it means to live in peace with nature and imagining a brighter future. Brought to you by the Pax Natura Foundation. Hello and welcome to Radio Natura. My name is Gwyn Glasser and I'm a recent graduate from the University of Edinburgh where I studied philosophy and the environment. As a young person in this day and age, I am constantly being inundated with calls to action to save our environment and I accept the urgency of these issues. However, I would very rarely find myself actually acting with a real sense of urgency. Knowledge of environmental issues should be motivating dramatic societal changes at every level, but obviously it's not doing that, or it hasn't done it yet. And so the question I would like to explore today is why not? Environmental philosophies present us with some answers to this question. Today I will be introducing you to some of the key experts who were influential in my thinking on this gap between our knowledge and our action, and I invite you to Decide what you think for yourself. I hope you enjoy. My name is Gwyn Glasser with Radio Natura, and uh, today I have with me Pauline Femister to discuss the gap between knowledge and action. Why knowing that something is the right thing to do doesn't always make us do it, uh, particularly with regards to the, our current environmental crisis that we are in the midst of. Um, Pauline, would you mind introducing yourself for, uh, for our listeners? Okay, thank you, Gwyn. Um, I am Professor of History of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, and my philosophical interests are in history of philosophy, but specifically the 17th century, so, and even more specifically the philosophy of Leibniz, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, that is. But I also have interests in environmental philosophy, or rather in deep ecological philosophy. And I combine those two by um, bringing my study of Leibniz to bear on my deep ecology interests. I teach in all those areas. I teach a course on the rationalists, on Spinoza and Leibniz. And I also teach a course on philosophy and the environment, which is how um, I met Gwyn because Gwyn was one of my students. Yes, and it was a wonderful course. Um, I tell her all the time. <laughs> Thank you. And we actually got to work through uh, your book. Um, oh, no, I've forgotten that. It's called oh, Leibniz and the Environment. Leibniz and the Environment. Yeah, um, which, was, which was really exciting. And actually, this course was the main driver for me, even having the idea to do this podcast. and. Um, it made me come up with the question, you know, it, it prompted me to think about this, the question um, that I'd like to be talking with you about today. <laughs> the question of um, the gap between knowledge and action. So often, I think myself and many others will find ourselves in situations where we know what the right thing to do is, but we don't do it. For some reason, that knowledge doesn't kind of penetrate deep enough to actually motivate action. 
Um, and, and an easy example is uh, I've recently been making efforts to be a vegetarian. And there was a long period of time where I knew I should be vegetarian. Environmentally, I knew the risks are just not worth the advantages of, you know, momentary pleasure versus, you know, the carbon footprint, environmental risks, not to mention the treatment of the animals. Um, but for some reason, I would, I would make jokes about it. I'd think about it. I'd tell people why I believed it. But I kept eating meat. And it took this course for me to for me to just be totally baffled by that and realize how absurd it is to have this true belief about the world or belief that I'm totally convinced in and to not act on it. Um, and Pauline, we've spoken a little bit about your experience of vegetarianism, which was quite different to mine. I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing, if you could tell me again. Yes, thank you. Um, it might not be so very different in that it did take a quite a while for me to bring my beliefs and thoughts into line with my actual actions. But in the end, when I decided that I was going to be a vegetarian, it was very, very easy because I had lost all, all desire for anything meat-based. <laughs> I was really quite repulsed by it. And I was repulsed because I had been thinking about um, the animals and imagining them on my plate um, and me eating them and then looking at the live counterparts outside and thinking, oh, no, 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 I really cannot. I cannot stomach that anymore. <laughs> so in the end, I really didn't have any good reasons for being vegetarian. Um, there are lots of reasons why you might want to say that you can still eat meat because you need the sheep to be still farmed and we don't want them to be wild and the, the, the cows would um, suffer if they were just suddenly left on the, to their own devices and the like. <laughs> but for me, I would rather still be able to farm the cows but not eat them. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, and this is something you've also said before in, in our other discussions on this. It wasn't for you a question of rational reasons. They weren't a bunch of pros and cons that you weighed up and decided on. Yeah. Instead, it, it was... It, the imagination had come into play. And my reaction to it was very physical. I literally could not stomach um, eating meat. And I got to the point where I didn't even like the smell of it cooking. So this, I think, is a really interesting difference between the pros and the cons and then as, as opposed to the visceral feeling of not wanting to do something. Um, and, you know, from just these two examples, it seems clear that one of those really motivates action and the other one kind of doesn't always. Yes. Um, and I think that was a distinction that, that's a distinction that um, your work and the work of kind of deep ecologists engages with. Um, and it was something that I really enjoyed learning about from, from your class. I, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about, um, in the interest of exploring these further, if we could talk a little bit about two concepts that are um, central to 
your work or what we learned about in, in, in this course. Uh, firstly, um, ecosophy and deep ecology. So if we could talk a little bit about um, ecosophy. Firstly, what is an ecosophy? Okay. Uh, an ecosophy is, a, well, an ecosophy is a term coined by Arnie Ness, founder of the deep ecology movement. And he advises everyone to um, develop their own ecosophy. And his own ecosophy, he called it ecosophy tea after a hut that he uh, lived in in the Norwegian mountains. An ecosophy is like a personal system of philosophy, a, a philosophy to live by. And it will cover the metaphysics. In other words, it will cover the nature of what reality is. It will cover epistemology, so questions about how we know things and what it is that we know. It, it will cover ethics, what, how should we live, our politics, what should we do, our legal systems, questions about justice and, and such like. So, it's, and all those bits must fit together in a philosophical system. Now, Ness based his own ecosophy T on the philosophy of Spinoza, who himself had a philosophical system that combined all those um, theory of what is with the ethics and um, theology too. And so that's a, an ecosophy, is a, a philosophical system of your own. And the fact that it's your own is a huge motivator because you're not living according to someone else's rules. You're living according to rules and dictates that you have set up for yourself. And you've set them up for yourself because you believe them and you've worked them out. You've given rational reasons for them. So that's what an ecosophy is. My own ecosophy, I have turned to the philosophy of Leibniz. And that's quite different from... Well, not quite different, but it is different from the philosophy of Arnie Ness's Ecosophy T because um, there are because of the differences between Leibniz and Spinoza and their different systems of philosophy. And anyway, we can come on to those issues later, I think. Mm. Uh, for now, you want me to say something about the deep ecology in itself or the deep ecology movement? Actually, I was thinking if we could first say um, say something about the practical importance of an ecosophy. Why might someone want to adopt one? And what will that do for them and or the world? Uh, their own practical ecosophy will, well, it will be practical because it will underpin, um, it will guide their actions and underpin what they do in life. Mm. So it's really a, a way of becoming very clear about what your values are, what you believe and what you value, what you would like to protect and what you would like to shun. And this is distinct from just making a pros and cons list, right? Oh, this yes. is yes. more significant. It's um, significant because it's building a systematic <laughs> logic which is integrated so that 
your beliefs and your actions come together. And so this ideally would put you in the, in a situation where you're getting the emotional feelings that align with the intellectual exactly. facts that you know. Yes. In the same way as my vegetarianism really <laughs> was an emotional effect. Right. Right. And something for me to work towards as a vegetarian. <laughs> um, so yeah, now if we could bring in deep ecology. So deep ecology has a lot in common with ecosophy, right? Yes. Deep, well, deep ecology is the, the more abstract system behind um, your personal ecosophies. Deep ecology is a proposal it's, that we each indeed make our own ecosophies by thinking deeply about the natural world, our place in it, our relations to it, our actions, and... Um, basically how we live. It's different from, well, Ness compares it to shallow ecology, which he says is based more on the solving practical problems, individual practical um, issues like pollution or um, maybe floodwaters putting in... Um, uh, what would you call them? Floodwater like, gates? Um, like dikes or dams? Like, yeah, like dikes or dams. Or I'm thinking about putting in things to stop the water coming up. See, we've got rising rising water levels. Right. Well, we could build up the seawalls to stop the water coming over. And that would be a, an approach that was based on shallow ecology. Deep ecology, it could also be called wide ecology because it will consider those sort of practical solutions in the short term, but it also asks us to think about the ramifications or the consequences of our actions and to go back to the root causes. So instead of just putting up a wall to stop the, the water rising, the rising water coming over onto the land, what we should be doing is thinking about why is the water rising and what is our place in it? How are we helping to cause that? And what can we do to stop it come, from rising? And we would also be thinking about not just the water rising, but what the implications are of putting up the, the walls, um, how that affects the local community, um, how it affects people's lives, how it affects the, the sea life, how it affects the other life on land. And ultimately, but the ideal would be to consider that action in the context of the whole. Now, of course, we can't always do that, but we can at least consider it in a wider context than um, the shallow ecologist will do. And how does ecosophy relate to deep ecology? How can these personal philosophies that we, that we build, how does that relate to this deep ecological approach. Okay, well, the deep ecology, the deep ecology movement um, is based on a set of eight, seven or eight principles that Arnie Ness and George Sessions set out um, that include things like um, valuing all life, valuing diversity, um, and such like. And those eight principles 
any personal ecosophy has to conform to those principles. But other than that, it doesn't have to bear any resemblance to Ness's own ecosophy, for instance. He based his ecosophy on Spinoza's metaphysics, whereas he allows that there can be wide diversity of ecosophies. You may want to um, appeal to a Buddhist philosophy or to a Christian philosophy, or you might want to appeal to, as I did, to Leibniz rather than Spinoza, or you might go for a, a more modern process philosophy like a Whiteheadian philosophy. Or you might come up with something completely new and <laughs> not base it on anything, just your own personal experience. Just make it up. <laughs> it does have to be coherent and um, it does have to be kind of rational to, to an extent. Yeah. So I, I think from what I remember and also from what, what you're saying, there's also... Uh, what I think is an empirical claim that the seven or eight points listed in the, in kind of the, the proposition of what deep ecology is, that these things valuing nature, et cetera, et cetera, are going to be essential for, um, for us if we're going to solve the, the environmental crisis. So yes. we need to adopt these seven points and ecosophies are ways for us to do that. I think the ecosophy is the way for us to put those abstract principles or general principles into action and to get them to translate into our own personal lives so that we ourselves take action. Right. And that was something that I found really, really inspiring about this course and about learning from you has been the idea of the ecosophy, you know, even for those listeners who, well, we haven't listed the seven points, but even for listeners who wouldn't, want to agree with every single one of the points there are still really significant changes in our lives that we can make you know vegetarianism is one easy example but there are many others of course and it's easy to think of them there are many different changes in our lives that we could make that could be assisted by uh the process of building an ecosophy of kind of building your personal philosophy that relates to the environment and strengthens your emotional um emotional reaction to these sorts of environmental issues. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about, a little bit more about um, what an ecosophy would look like in practice. Uh, if you're sitting at home listening now, what, what should ecosophy mean to you? And then maybe in a little bit, we can talk about how you could start to build your own ecosophy and, and things like that. Okay, perhaps one way of, Getting into that would be for me to talk about my own philosophy. Yeah, that would be lovely. Um, I, my view is, um, I suppose, a nominalist philosophy, uh, which means that I believe that the world is made up of individual, in, individual beings, uh, unique, each of them unique and particular and I also believe that the whole world is um, full of these living vibrant um, 
wonderful beings uh, right <laughs> Why, down thank you. to <laughs> right down to your atoms and your quarks and uh, so forth, um, and that each of those has their own life force, and when you pay attention to them, you see their own individuality. Now, I think a lot of ecology and a lot of ecologists will just talk in terms of species and we'll talk about, um, you know, different species of cat or different, um, you know, different communities of wolves or the like. But we don't go usually down to a very individual relationship with another individual living being, a non-human living being. And I think there's profound changes that happen when we do do that. Now, a lot of us will see that in relation to the pets that we share our homes with. Um, dogs are fairly easy to get to know because they actually look you in the eye and you can build up a relationship <laughs> with them and you can um, get them to understand uh, your language and you get to understand them and their body language and the like. So, um you, you basically get to understand each other. <clears throat> it's far more difficult when you're looking, say, to a worm or a beetle or, <laughs> or an individual bee. But mm. they are all individuals. You see it with birds. You, if you watch communities of birds, you'll see that some of them are quite timid and others are quite belligerent. And um, you see their habits and you under, start to understand their, their patterns of, of life. And you understand the differences between things. And I think sameness and difference are crucial. Um, we want to see the similarities between things because that's what builds our empathic relationships with them. But we also need to see their otherness and their differences, not just with, amongst their own species, but also with us. But I think once we come to a realization on a personal level, that there are other beings out there in the world who are experiencing the same world as, as we do, but experiencing it from their own perspectives. And when we really properly take on board the idea that these are living beings with their own perspectives on the world, and we realize that these beings can have pleasure and pain and emotions of a, you know, a rich emotional life, like the spider on the wall, um, building its nest. It does building its its web. Um, it's living a life that is of value to it. Um, and I think once we really start to think carefully about these things, we'll think twice before we take the web down, just in order to clean our houses. <laughs> Um, and I think to that we need, I think we need to pay attention to the individual beings in the world in all their particularities, and we need to welcome them into the human world <clears throat> because so much of what has been happening, say, in the 20th century, 19th century, and the like, has all been about setting places for humans that do not include the non-human. 
So we put down pesticides to get rid of the weeds. We um, put down ant powder to kill the ants. We put down our mouse traps to keep the mice out of the house. Um, we just try to sanitize or have been trying to sanitize our environments. And I think that's unhealthy, not just, well, it is unhealthy, emotionally unhealthy. I think it's also probably unhealthy on a, a physical level as well. Mm. Um, we need to learn, I think, to share our environments with the others and to ask the others if they will let us into theirs. So that is absolutely wonderful, Pauline. And I have also found myself, you know, after having studied under you, I find myself really, you know, spending a good 20 minutes to get a fly out the window rather than swatting it. Because I just can't, I just, I just can't justify killing it to myself anymore. Um, and, and, but I think the problem, a lot of people would agree is that uh, that's a difficult, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not an ob how we reach that point isn't obvious. I think there were, there might be some listeners who are sitting on the bus and hear you talking about birds and think, what, they're just birds, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and, and I can imagine a listener who, you know, as much as they want to feel them empathy, they just don't. Um, and myself included, I can imagine that because that, that is me in many instances. And, um, and I, you know, I'm still working on, on developing that. So how can, how can we actually, you know, what actions can we take to start approaching that sort of sense where we can view the birds, how you view them and, and view the spider, how you view it and, and begin to let this empathy change our actions and engage us emotionally in environmental issues. What actions can we take? Well, let me put a question back to you then. Mm -hmm. um, as, as a way of answering this question, I'm not, I'm not evading it. Um, mm -hmm. But a couple of times during the course, I mean, we were doing it all online and I was giving you weekly tasks and um, a weekly plan of various things that you had to do. And at a couple of points, I asked you to go out for a walk. Yeah. <laughs> I remember one, I said, okay, go out and see, take a walk and see if you can have some gestalt experiences, a gestalt experience being on the Nessian. Um, well, we, can we, can we can go into that in a little bit. <laughs> we, we could talk about gestalt experiences. Yes, we could. <laughs> um, or whole experiences, a, a gestalt experience is a whole where you're, you're not an individual seeing something, but you're actually part of the environment and within you know, the experience itself is something. So you don't, ex in a gestalt experience, you would, um, the boundaries between the individual and the outside world have broken down. So you would come to the realization that who you are is in part, if not even wholly perhaps, formed by the environment that you are in. And if you were not in that environment and you were not doing the things that you're doing, you would be a different person or your life would be taking a different route. Um, so I remember, oh, excuse, me, excuse me. Yeah, I don't know if you went for that um, gestalt 
try to I did. I did. I did. I did. I definitely did. <laughs> well, can um, you describe then? Yes. So I actually have in my notes, Gestalt walk question mark, even before you said that, because um, that those sorts of activities were so fundamental in developing, you know, the beginnings of anacosophy for myself. Um, and I think what was so powerful about that was, so the concept of gestalt, as I understand it, and um, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I'll also be embarrassed if I am, uh, but the concept of gestalt is the idea that the, our, our world is made up of um, experiences, and yeah. those experiences themselves can be broken down into smaller experiences indefinitely. You can, you can uh, take any gestalt and within each gestalt, there will be millions and millions of others gestalts. And what those are, those gestalts are just impressions, sensations, moments. So when you, when you smell a smell that makes you think of your childhood home, that's a gestalt experience. And that, that, that experience includes your childhood home. It includes the feelings you felt there. It includes the smell, it includes your family. So it includes all of these different elements that come together to make this whole, which itself can be broken down into smaller holes, which can also be broken down. Um, on my walk, one example was I was walking on the street and I saw the street itself. And I thought, well, the street is one gestalt made up of these stones. And then this, each stone individually is its own gestalt made up of, you know, whatever millions of years generated its shape and its materials. And each segment of it, maybe there are some cracks in it that divide it up into other gestalts. And then within those cracks, there are other fractures or impurities or just the way the atoms come together. And so these gestalts make up the world. And the reason this idea was powerful for me to motivate a kind of a more empathetic connection with my environment was because it gave me uh, grounds on which to say, my subjective experience is true. What I mean by that is where previously I would say that tree looks like an old man and there's nothing real about that. It's just, it's just me thinking this tree looks like an old man. But with a gestalt view, what is actually happening is there is a gestalt in front of you which includes an old man and a tree and the old men in your life and, and all of these things that build up that experience, the sunset on the tree, the shadows, everything comes together and makes this real thing that, um, that exists, that is the gestalt of me seeing this tree and seeing an old man. And that's significant because where previously you know, it kind of puts it on equal footings with other observations about the tree, like um, its height, its width, how it physically looks, how much money it's worth. Those kind of physical things become just another, are just another gestalt next to millions of other gestalts. And so I can treat my empathetic experience as something that really is real and has substance, which of course it is. I mean, no one could say that I didn't see an old man in that tree because I did. And it's as real as, as, you know, as anything. It's as real as the weight of the tree. It's as real as the height of the tree. It's just as real for me to say there is an, it looks like there's an old man in that tree. And just that kind of confirmation of those sorts of sensations really gave me confidence in, in 
starting to build these empathetic connections with with the world that bird looks beautiful and that's not just subjective that bird really is beautiful for me and that's just as true as anything else could be true um this forest gives me a feeling of peace and serenity that's true just in in as literally and as undeniably as anything else can be true ness makes a big point about this when he's talking about the contents of the world and he he's very critical of the physical sciences when they try to just abstract everything back to things that can be quantified and measured and take away the what he calls the secondary qualities and the tertiary qualities just leave it with the primary qualities which are basically length breadth depth anything that's measurable that kind of stuff the shape and the form of things and he says they don't really belong in nature what nature is 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 colorful it's lush it's it's got smells it's got tastes it's got um <clears throat> it's just got a variety a, a myriad of qualities he says um and it includes all those things like um the sorrowful mountain or the um the happy bird <laughs> the bird song or whatever um the, those tertiary qualities those emotional things are also part of the natural world or the world itself so just to clarify that so primary qualities are things like breadth with secondary color qualities there are things like colors um is that right yeah yeah and then the tertiary ones are kind of the quote unquote most subjective which are the 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 feelings that a thing evokes the feelings and the affects yes yeah the the um, the primary secondary quality distinction goes back to lock john lock and and to the early scientific um revolution um galileo newton and bacon actually not just lock made it famous um but yes extension shape size um figure those kind of things yeah so there's there's some abstract but of course barclay um george barclay criticized that primary secondary quality distinction on the grounds that well you never actually see a triangle see a triangular figure that doesn't have some color you have to have the the color in there if you're going to be able to distinguish you see this and difference again if you're going to be able to distinguish the triangular object from the non-triangular things that are around about it and this goes back to ness and gestalt as well right in that yes. you, you you nothing can exist in isolation anything it, it, it's kind of like it's a denial of it, it's kind of not true to think about things in terms of only their width breadth height because we'll never ever be able to experience them in that way yeah and it's just an abstraction and of course we need abstractions we we think with them all our words are abstract ideas really um so and we need build to communicate and... but um on a a lived experiential level that's not an abstraction that's something real so why are these abstractions important why because we know we know sorry sorry why are the other things important why is the whole important we know why abstractions are important we use ideas like quantity and height and width and weight and stuff to build you know incredible machines technology medicine so so we know that these abstractions these kind of divvied off sections of reality are very useful and powerful why is it important to have that whole that total view 
of the Gestalt experience of the color and, and the feeling? Well, you have to combine the, the abstractions with um, the other qualities in order to make them real. And then reality is structured by the primary qualities, but in and of themselves, they're not real, but they give the, as it were, the framework within which everything else happens. Right. So it's like saying we can measure things as much as we want and make things as efficient, as quantifiable as we want. But ultimately, that is useless unless it also is serving us some purpose in yes. kind of a fuller lived experience. Yes. Unless it's making us happy, fulfilled, survive Indeed. experience. Yes. And so could we try to bring this back again to the original question of action and knowledge and kind of developing this emotional connection with your environment and how how someone can become more involved in environmental issues. So it 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 sounds well it sounds like I mean I have <laughs> I did study this. What what I think is that we need ecosophies. Ecosophies are important because an ecosophy is a structure that you can make yourself that will build your emotional connection to an environmental issue so that when you hear a fact, you don't just hear it, you also feel it. Um, and that, that feeling, that emotional reaction will be the thing that, you know, it's the thing that motivated Jonathan Safran Foer's grandmother to flee the Nazis. You know, it's, it's having a, an, an actionable connect or a connection, a motivational connection with an issue. Um, and I think ecosophies can help us build that. Yes, but I think that might be to put it too abstractly. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I really think what will help us build it are those gestalt experiences, if you like, um, and they ultimately are based on, again, this notion of attention. We need to pay attention to our surroundings and the things that are in us, and they, they are forming part of us. So, you know, like if you were um, to take a walk and take the walk, the same walk every day, and just pay attention, say, to the hedgerows, then you see how things change. You see them grow, you see them die off, you see new things form, you see new plants come up, you see the old ones die, you see them come, you know, you just, um, it's that act of paying attention that makes your perceptions more distinct. Of course, there's a scientific story to be told as well, um, which is important when you actually do take action because you don't want to um, have perform actions that are going to have bad consequences. Um, but as a motivation to act, I think that paying attention to your surroundings and coming to the realization that your surroundings are part of what make you who you are. And that's the gestalt thing coming in. Um, the experiences that you've had in the past, the experiences that you have now, the experiences too that you may have in the future, 
your relationships to the past, the present, and the future all combine in those emotional um, but rational um, experiential moments, if you like. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's where the key to the motivation comes. You see pleasure. You take a nice walk outside. Well, maybe it's raining. Maybe it's pouring down and you're getting really drenched. Um, but it's still a, it's a rich experience. Um, and then in times of drought, you realise, ah, okay, I'm missing that rain. Now, why have we got drought? All right, yeah. Maybe that's to do with climate change. Or maybe you've got too much rain. Ah, perhaps that's to do with climate change. What can I do? to um, stop this destructive behaviour? And what can I do to stop others in the same way? So it sounds like you would, um, you would, uh, oh, what's the word that doctors do? Uh, Prescribe. Prescribe, thank you. It sounds like you would prescribe more Gestalt walks for, for everyone. And that would be a good beginning. Does that sound right? Or is it more a, than that? I think that would be an excellent beginning. And you don't, it doesn't have to be a gestalt walk in the countryside. I think a gestalt walk in the city can be just as valuable. You might start noticing the weeds growing out, you know, all them trying, all these beings trying to strive for existence. And then you come to the realization that if all the beings in the world that are striving for existence, are flourishing, then we too will flourish alongside them. Yeah. Our, our well-being is, is intimately bound up with the well-being of others. And that, that's a Leibnizian phrase, although he phrased it as um, something about um, it's difficult to be happy in the midst of miserable people. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I would, he's right. <laughs> Um, and I would paraphrase that as it's difficult to be happy in the midst of a decaying world, um, especially when we know that we're a large part to blame for that. And I guess that's happiness, not just in, not not just difficult in that it's upsetting, but also difficult in that in failing to care about environment in our our environment, we're making it increasingly worse, and and that's making it more difficult to be happy as well, right? Yes, yeah, and it's worrying. Yeah, and then you realise that it's going to um, impact even more um, uh, deeply on your children, grandchildren, and all the future generations. So I'm going to try to summarise, Pauline, and you tell me if I've missed anything or oversimplified something or or something. Um, So there is this there is this gap. Jonathan Safran Farrer noticed it when his, you know, in his mother not fleeing or his grandmother fleeing Poland, but had none of her family doing the same. Yeah. Um, we talked about it with respect to vegetarianism, a much, much more low key example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gap comes from a lack of emotional engagement. We, we know about an issue, but for some reason we're not driven to act. And it seems like more and more kind of intellectual exercises don't quite add up to generating that emotional. Yes, because we're thinking about things too abstractly. Right. It's because we're, yeah, exactly. Like 
back with respect to the Gestalt thing is it's viewing different aspects of the world in isolation. Yes, and we're, we're not engaging ourselves literally um, in the world. Right. So it's yeah. not enough to just share it on Instagram and to, to, you know, share facts, do reading about facts and, you know, keep things analytical. Yeah. It's not enough to take a picture of your meal and share that on Facebook. <laughs> you have to actually eat it and taste it and enjoy it. <laughs> oh, wow. Wonderful. So wonderful. well said, Pauline. Um, so there's that gap. And, and we have to live. Yeah, we have to live. <laughs> and you think you, you would suggest that to do that, that starts with attention. It starts with attention. Yes. And then we learn to live well uh, or as well as we can, because we, we're all um, got those things that we would like to do and we just can't bring ourselves to take the action. Um, but we can work on it. Um, and we can work on it by yeah, engaging properly with the world. Yeah. Enjoying it, though. It, it, I think an environmentalism that is full of doom and gloom is not a good motivator. Um, but what <laughs> is a good motivator is um, the... We want to protect those things that bring us pleasure, that bring us joy, that we want to preserve those things that, or increase the things that give us beauty, um, the diversity of things, the order of things, when we see how, I mean, the natural world is absolutely incredible. The scientists know that <laughs> because they're just, you know, they're studying all these intricate systems, um, but we can experience it too, when you see, if you just look at a tree, say, and you see the shapes of the, the branches and the like, and you, it's a thing of beauty. Um, but it also needs the environment that it's in. Nothing can stand just on its own. Do you think you could uh, take our listeners on a bit of a journey, maybe? To, say they're sitting on the bus right now, or they're doing their commute, or they're lying in bed, or they're cooking, or they're doing whatever. Well, those are all different, very different things. <laughs> the person well, on the bus is, is experiencing a lot of changing. Um, if the bus is moving, they're seeing all sorts of different things, but just in a momentary fashion. Well, let's talk to the bus. Let's talk to the bus person, the commuter. The commuter. I would say to the commuter that they should concentrate on the, the noises, the sounds around them. And really pay attention to the sound of the bus, the sounds of other people talking, the sounds of, you know, what's happening outside, the traffic outside, um, maybe the ring of the bell when somebody wants to get on and off and things. And then think about, maybe just contrast that, that all those noises with, Later, take another, another, take a walk <laughs> and listen, listen to the noises maybe in the countryside with the birds and the, you know, um, the non-human noises. That's quite a contrast there. Um, but think too about which which noises you enjoy and which ones you don't. Yeah, there might be a child laughing and giggling in the corner, and it, it brings a smile to your face. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, that's, that's just a thought. 
as a way of just actually getting in tune, bringing the body and the mind together. I think that's what the ecosophies do, and that's what deep ecology does too. Um, in that you bring reason and imagination, reason and emotion, the body and the mind together. So, you know, you 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 are in the world as and live it as an embodied being. And all the bodies outside are affecting your state of mind, actually. So if you're on the bus, yeah, all those noises are part of what's making up your mind at that any this very moment. Yeah. That's beautiful, Pauline. Thank you very much. I think we we covered a lot there, and I think we might have skimmed over a couple of things or doubled back a couple of times, but I think <laughs> I'm very happy with uh, with what we covered, and thank you very much for for joining me on this. I'm sorry we didn't get to do it in person, but I still had a lot of fun. Uh, thank you, Gwen. Yeah, there's there is a lot more we could have said, um, but it's just a a conversation. We might continue. Yeah, exactly. And I hope to continue it further um, at a later date, maybe. But we'll see how that goes. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me, Pauline.